It's March 1938. In Vienna, Austria, shouts of Heil Hitler fill the air. Branch President Alois Jeep watches Adolf Hitler triumphantly enter the occupied city. Alois worries how this pivotal moment will affect the Latter-day Saints in his branch. This story is next in Chapter 25, No Time to Lose. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today, we have Angela Hallstrom, a former writer on the Saints Project. Welcome to the podcast, Angela. I'm glad to be here. Well, Angela, to begin with, we'd love to hear some of your favorite moments from working on this particular volume of Saints. Great. Well, working on Volume 3 was a real privilege. Most of the work that I did on Volume 3 was on the second half. I did a little bit of editing and some reading and reviewing on the first half, but I dedicated about a year of my life just focused solely on helping to write the second half of Volume 3. And so the people in this volume are near and dear to my heart. Just a little bit about me. I'm a writer, not a trained historian, and I was brought onto the team to be able to collaborate with the historians, to be able to turn it into a narrative. And so I tend to approach my work on these chapters in the way that a storyteller would. I'm focused on the individuals. I'm focused on the story. And the history itself, obviously, is very important as well. But I feel like some of these people have become my friends as I have told their story. And Angela, had you done much in the way of church history work before you came along to the Saints Project? So not officially. I've always been interested in church history. I enjoyed reading about church history. I enjoyed my own family stories. So I had a natural affinity for it, but not to this level. And especially when you look at the stories of Volume 3, I would say most members of the church are very uneducated as to some of the events and happenings in the church in the early to mid 20th century. And so it has been a great education for me and something that's changed the way I see the church and changed the way that I even see world history too. It was a great education in world history. Well, sometimes, especially in the early 20th century, I feel like the world history, there's so many significant things happening in the world that it kind of overshadows church history. So I have just so enjoyed hearing about the world history from the perspective of the saints and how it has affected the church as a whole and how the church has reacted. I really hope that that will be one of the great benefits of this volume for people who are reading it is that not only are they going to get a great education in church history, but they will see things that happened around the world from a brand new perspective. As an American, for example, the World War II stories that I was familiar with were almost always World War II stories told from an American or British or every once in a while French point of view. And there are so many members of the church in Europe who live in Germany and in this chapter who live in Austria, in Czechoslovakia, to be able to know the stories of members of the church from that part of Europe. And it flipped my perspective in really important ways on World War II to be immersed in all of those stories. Thank you, Angela. And the period that this volume covers really is the lesser known part of our church's history. We kind of go from the pioneers, the, you know, settling Utah and colonizing, and then we seem to kind of jump 
all the way up to maybe the 1960s, you know, 70s, and the church is kind of growing tremendously elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with how the church dealt with some of the issues that we cover in this volume. And so I hope as well that people find this interesting because this is the period where the church goes from being largely American, small, limited organization to grappling with issues of having many missions across the world and trying to manage all of the issues in the membership and the new programs that they're introducing. So it's a fascinating period. It is. Angela, in this chapter, we're introduced to the Jeep family. We have Alois and Hermine Jeep in their home in Vienna, and they're members of the church. And I wonder if you could just tell us why them? Yes. Out of all of the members in in Austria and Germany, why are they here in Saints Volume 3? Yeah. So one of the reasons that we felt it was really important to include the Jeeps as characters is because Alois and Hermine, who we are introduced to in this chapter, are local church leaders. Often in Europe, missionaries from the United States would be running local congregations. We have a lot of stories from missionaries. We have a lot of those stories. But we want to tell the stories of the people who are from the area that we're writing about, and especially to be able to tell the story of people who are leading the branches in their area. And so Alois and Hermine just fit that bill perfectly. Not only was that the case, but they were leading the Vienna branch during an incredibly tumultuous time in world history and had to lead the saints throughout the devastation of the war and afterward. And we are fortunate that they left behind and then their daughter Emmy collected and their granddaughters have preserved these amazing stories that have allowed us to be able to see the church in this part of Europe through their eyes. Thanks for sharing that, Angela. We also read in this chapter how the Jeeps experienced difficulties after joining the church, of course, before they were these local leaders. Can you tell us anything about the family's conversion and the experiences that they had as Latter-day Saints in Austria? They were definitely a minority. The group of saints in Vienna was quite small. And Alois, for example, when he joined the church, his father was absolutely furious with him and basically told him, consider yourself cut off from me. If you choose the church, you are choosing it over me. And he still made that choice. So Alois and Hermine were like many people. They struggled financially. They were trying to just keep their heads above water, but they also had important church callings that they took very, very seriously from the beginning of their conversion. And they were the center in many ways of that small branch. And they were an important father figure and mother figure to so many other converts to the church who were from Vienna. They were such a minority and were looked upon with such suspicion that they depended on each other in so many ways. And this didn't really make it into the book, but there are so many stories about Alois spending hours and hours and hours riding his bike throughout the huge city of Vienna that he had to cover as the branch president to try to keep tabs on all the people that he felt responsible for. And the same was true of Hermine, going to help and be with people, especially women. There were so many women who were affected by their husbands having to go to war, women who became widows. And Hermine felt a real sense of responsibility for these women as her role as the Relief Society president really underscored that. So 
they really looked out for each other as a family. That was the sense I got from the material they left behind, that they all needed each other because they were such a minority in Vienna. What can you tell us about the state of the church in Austria at this time? What I do know is that it was very small, but that they were making transitions in certain parts of Europe, like here in Vienna, to try to turn things over to local leadership. So I know that for people who ran the missions in the 1930s, there was more of an emphasis on saying, okay, what can we do to try to get local members to lead these branches? And that's one reason that Alois served. And he served for a very, very long time. But that was a really important shift. And it turned out to be crucial to the saints in Vienna because all the Americans left. So it was a great thing that there were some Europeans who had this leadership training and experience behind them because when all the Americans left, they had to do it all on their own. Well, Angela, we read in this chapter about Germany taking over Austria. And we're just wondering if you can tell us a little more about the impact that that had on the church and particularly the Jeeps. Yes. So this was also a crucial moment in history. And I was glad to have some of Alois's own memories of this time. He was actually present when Hitler came riding into the square and recorded his own experiences seeing that. So I was very grateful that he had written some of that down so that we can include that in Saints. It was a difficult time because after World War I, so many people in Europe suffered economically a great deal. And Alois and his family felt that. And there was a feeling among some that Hitler was promising greater financial stability. He was promising more pride in being of German heritage. And actually, Germany and Austria, there was a lot of overlap, people who lived there. Hitler himself was born in Austria. And so there were people in Austria who saw Hitler as somebody they claimed as their own. Now, there were many people in Austria who were very opposed to Hitler and the Nazis and everything they stood for. But there were also plenty of people in Austria who thought, well, maybe this is our way forward out of our economic doldrums, or maybe this is our way forward into power. That has been one thing that's been so fascinating is to read about the saints who were involved in this time with hindsight. As they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. We look at it and we think, how could people not know what the outcome of this would be? But they were living it. Hermine, though, was very upset when the Anschluss happened, saying, you know, we're no longer Austria. Austria is not Austria anymore. But as Alois writes, when Hitler came riding through the city, people thronged the streets and were cheering and shouting. So it was a very strange and unsettling time. But then once the Nazis took power, things began to change very, very rapidly in very negative ways, and especially for members of the church. They no longer had the same freedoms they had to say what they wanted to say, to worship the way they wanted to worship and especially for members of the church who had Jewish heritage. So there were a few members in the Vienna branch who had Jewish heritage, and it affected them in a horrible, heart-wrenching way. And you'll get to that in another episode, I'm sure. But that was on the minds of everyone as all of these changes were taking place. And there was a lot of fear and suspicion and members of the same branch who would inform on each other It was a very, very difficult time to be a branch of the church in Vienna. And within this chapter, we read of this 
narrow escape that the Jeep children mm-hmm. have where they make it back into Austria from Czechoslovakia. And you get this sense that this is clearly a very stressful and manic time. But mm-hmm. I suppose my question to you is, why is this in Saints? What is significant about this particular moment? How does this help the telling of the story? Yes, there's a few reasons why that particular scene. So you're talking about the scene of where Emmy and her siblings are fleeing Czechoslovakia. Uh-huh. So there's a couple of reasons. One is because the source material was so great. So Emmy is a character, is somebody who we're going to carry forward. And she wrote about this in such detail. So as writers, we can only write about what we have sources to write about. And we can only include the details that they include. And actually, she included so many details about this harrowing train ride out of Czechoslovakia that we were not able to include for space reasons. You could just write a book about Emmy. So there's that. But I think the other reason, and this was so important, and I think it was important to Alois in his own history, because there is the harrowing story of watching Emmy. As readers, I want people to get to know Emmy. I want them to attach to her as a character because we will follow her all the way to Canada and eventually the United States. But that very day that they're leaving, so they're told that Germany has invaded Poland and that the borders are going to be closed down. The children are separated. So Emmy's 11, and then she has an older brother and sister who I think are 13 and 15, and they're with their aunt and uncle. And their mother and father are back in Vienna. So they're hurrying back to be with them. But the reason that Hermine and Alois are back in Vienna is because they were able to get an apartment that in many ways was a blessing for them. And Eloise writes about it as a blessing to be able to get this apartment because they had always struggled so much. But the apartment that they are able to get used to belong to a Jewish family. So it's on a street in Vienna that was once occupied by thousands and thousands of Jewish people who had been violently basically evicted from their homes and forced to leave. It's a terrible time in history. And so when we read about that, we see... And I hope that readers can feel some of the conflict there, some of the difficulties with that. So there's also a historical reason that we talk about them moving into this apartment. Angela, you mentioned these sources that you're using and that there were so many details and so much that you could include. Where did these records and this material come from? Emmy left really fantastic records behind. So she told the story of her life not only in retrospect, so she writes about her memories of this time, but she also leaves behind letters, she leaves behind photos, and all of these were gathered together and made into a book that her daughter then donated to the church history department, which is what allowed us to be able to access all of this. Shout out to family historians. They are the backbone on which so many of these stories are written. Well, Angela, this escape from Czechoslovakia, I think it's very gripping material. And there's almost this sense of innocence that is being prized away from the children, a rude awakening, as you will, to the fact that their world is about to change completely. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the ways in which you, as a writer of this volume, worked with the historians. How in practice does that take place? I think that it's been such an interesting process to be able to find this balance between we want to tell stories about compelling people, 
we need to write it in scenes, which means we need to have dialogue, we need to have description, we need to have emotion, and all of those things need to be grounded in historical documented sources. But on the other hand, we are telling the story of the history of the church. And so just because a story is well-written and interesting doesn't necessarily mean that it belongs in saints. Or just because there is something of historical significance that happens in the church doesn't mean that we have the source material to make it a compelling scene because we need to be able to have dialogue or description or sense of people's emotions in order to make it pop off the page. So that push and pull, like how can we find these people, and Emmy is one of those people, and these stories and these sources that allow us to do both of those things. And James, you know, James and I worked together for a long time on a lot of these scenes. And I would rely on James. I would say, James, you go dig, you go digging. And I would always say, James is an excellent tree shaker. I would say, hey, James, can you find some sources for this? And he would start shaking a tree and the sources would fall out. And I was always very grateful to James for that. Well, and to be clear, sometimes we would be so precise that in one of the scenes that we were writing, we needed to know what the weather was that day. Mm -hmm. And I spent time pouring through all of these meteorological reports to get the exact temperature readings mm -hmm. and rain for a particular afternoon and evening. And I think that's a good example of one of the ways that the historians, you know, it goes both ways. You know, the historians will say, hey, this is really important. We need to write about this. But mm -hmm. then the writers will equally say to the historians, like, hey, I need a bit more here. You yeah. need to go find Where's it. the scene? Where's the scene, James? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a question we would always ask each other. And I think people would be fascinated to know that there were times when in writing two sentences, there would be six different sources that would go into those two sentences because one of them let us know that it was muddy and one of them let us know that she felt sad. And one of them is the historical information that we needed for background. So on, on and on and on. And all of those notes would then go to source checkers who would very, very meticulously check and make sure that if I said somebody sighed, that person better say they sighed in their journal or in a letter or else it's going to get cut. It's just amazing all of the work that goes into this, but it really does read so well and it's so engaging and Angela we do get connected to these characters you're saying that you hope that people attach to Emmy and they will and they do it's really amazing and one other thing too is I am so grateful for good writers who tell their own stories so when I look at Emmy's source material that she left behind when you think about writing your own story leave behind the sensory information that you remember tell us what things looked like and smelled like and felt like and sounded like and tell us how you felt. Even for writing saints, obviously, those things are so helpful. But as family historians, those are the things that will help your stories and your memories remain in people's minds beyond just the facts and the dates and the information. And don't you think it helps bring it to life? You can actually imagine yourself there when you have these extra details Today, people consume a lot of television and movies and so on. And that's a very visual experience. And reading can be a visual experience, but it needs to have those extra details to kind of bring it to life. Definitely. So 
I think it might be interesting to read just a little bit of how Emmy told this story, because not all of it makes it to the page for space reasons and other reasons. But she was such a fantastic writer that I want to show you a little bit about how she wrote her story and how that helped us. And one little detail, too, that I don't think is in the chapter right now is that she had been told by someone that there might be bombs on the bridges. Now, whether or not that is true, we don't know. But she, as an 11-year-old girl, believed that when they crossed a bridge that the train might explode. So this is what she wrote. It has been many years since, but the one thing I vividly recall was the odor of the people around me. A very hot and humid day, we were crowded, standing body to body. And inasmuch as I was shorter than everyone around me, I saw nothing except people's arms and shoulders. What seemed an eternity was perhaps not that long, but a man realized I was close to fainting from lack of air and pulled me in front of him and asked others to let me get to the window. There was grumbling and great reluctance, but finally I found myself leaning against the outside wall of the train with a breeze that seemed heaven sent. It may have been this breathless trip which made me respond very negatively to bad body odor for the rest of my life. But even just those little details about how she felt, how things smelled, what it felt like to be small and squished by all of these bodies on the train. Those are the kinds of details that as a writer who's looking for good historical material, when you read that, you go, yes. Oh, it was so vivid. It's neat that she was such a great writer and that you had access to all of that. Mm -hmm. What were some of the challenges of researching this arc of the Jeep family and their experiences? Actually, I would say this arc was one of the less challenging arcs because Emmy did such a good job leaving behind so much material. And also because I was able to be in contact with her daughters who helped. Emmy herself died in 2020. She was in her 90s, so lived a long and rich life but I was never able to speak with her. She died right around the time I started writing. But we are very fortunate that she left so much behind. So it actually made it pretty easy to write this arc. Well, thank you for that, Angela. I think readers are going to enjoy Emmy and her family and seeing what happens to the saints in Vienna. Let's turn our attention now to another important story in this chapter, which is that of President J. Reuben Clark and his address to church education employees. I wonder if you could tell us anything about President Clark and what he was like as a person. Sure. It was interesting to learn more about President Clark. Of course, I was familiar with him. I was familiar with his role as a church leader, but I didn't know as much about his past before I started working on Volume 3. He is a very interesting and really important player in church history during this time. He was well known for his intellect and for his education. So he was always very focused on education. He ended up going to Columbia, got a law degree there, and then was a very successful attorney and also worked in politics and was a diplomat. So at the time he was called to the first presidency, he was actually the ambassador to Mexico at that time. And he was seen as a pretty cosmopolitan man. Many church leaders at that time had been born and raised in Utah and never really left Utah. And they were also plenty of very educated and wise people who were church leaders at that time. But J. Reuben Clark knew a lot of people who weren't members of the church and had worked outside of the church for many, many years. And so he had some credibility in that area. 
And as soon as he became a member of the first presidency, he was a very influential person in the church. So at this time, he has been in the first presidency for a few years, and he is concerned about the rise of secularization in the world generally and in the church also. So he was concerned that seminary and institute teachers and religion teachers at BYU were spending too much time focused on subjects that were not necessarily key to what was important about the gospel. Well, I think quite quickly we get a sense that this is a pretty important moment. Let's listen to an extract from the book. No amount of learning, no amount of study, and no number of scholastic degrees can take the place of this testimony, he said. Furthermore, he declared, You do not have to sneak up behind this spiritually experienced youth and whisper religion in his ears. You can come right out, face to face, and talk with him. You do not need to disguise religious truths with a cloak of worldly things. So there's a lot going on in this scene. And Angela, you mentioned about his concerns with secularism. And I wondered if there was a specific event or situation that had prompted President Clark to announce this chartered course for church education. Yes, I don't think there was a one singular event, but he had been receiving letters. The First Presidency had been concerned that BYU campus, for example, that some professors were not putting the church first, that they were more focused on teaching, quote unquote, worldly things. And there was even some talk of religion teachers who were not talking about Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but were speaking of him just as a historical figure as it started to become more and more common in academia at that time. And so I think part of what he was trying to do was to say, BYU and church education is different from other types of education. Now, this particular speech was given just to religion teachers. It wasn't given to like BYU faculty as a whole. And it was primarily seminary and institute teachers. But I think it was a kind of a retrenchment, actually, just saying these are the things that we need to focus on. There's a quote from the speech that I think sums it up. He says, there are for the church and for each and all of its members two prime things which may not be overlooked, forgotten, shaded or discarded. First, that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the only begotten of the father in the flesh. The second is that the Father and the Son actually and in truth and very deed appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith in a vision in the woods. Without these two great beliefs, the church would cease to be the church. So I think that is at the heart of what he's trying to say is believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, believing that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, that is what church educators are supposed to be doing. Thank you for that additional context into that message. I appreciate that. And I think some readers might look at this event and think, okay, why is this in St. This address was given specifically to religious teachers. And so for readers who might wonder, why are we reading about this? From your perspective, Angela, why is this moment included in the book and what does it represent? I would say because historically this speech, this talk has had a profound effect on guiding seminaries and institutes for decades and decades. So even now, they turn to this speech as kind of a template for what church education is supposed to do. 
So even at the moment, maybe the people who were participating in that specific event that was happening, they may not have known that it would have the ramifications that it did. But over the decades, it has had a great amount of staying power. And I think historians look at things like this and say, okay, what is something that has stayed? What is something that has remained and continues to influence us even to this day? And this particular talk does that. And I think really at the heart of it, saints is a history of the church. But specifically, it's impossible to document every single thing that's happened in the church, every talk or every new policy or whatever. But this is evidently something that has had a lasting and meaningful impact on the church, and it's helped shape it to be what it is today. And so this is an example of where saints, it's not just how the church reacts to every global event, but we see it's also about how the church becomes what it is today through the different stages that it's progressed over time. I would also say that one of the things that we try to do as writers is to say, what are some of the conflicts that are going on in the church? And by conflicts, I don't necessarily mean that that's negative. By saying conflict, I mean it more in a narrative way. So what are some of the problems that the church is working to overcome? And during this era, there was a lot of concern around the world changing so rapidly The world of the 1930s was a very different place than the world of the 1890s, for example. And so how do we deal with education? Education now is teaching things that we don't quite know how to incorporate this into our worldview and how much religion should be taught at BYU. That was a discussion that was going on. And how do we talk to our youth in such a way that is open and acknowledges new scientific discoveries, for example, but also strengthens faith. And I found it actually quite familiar. I think we have these same struggles today. And so that's part of why this is included as well, because that is a conflict that persists. How do we maintain important core truths of the gospel when the world is changing rapidly? Well, thanks so much, Angela, for joining us today and for bringing your perspective, especially in researching and writing so many aspects to this book. We really appreciate everything that you've shared. Well, it's been my pleasure, and it was my pleasure to work on this volume of Saints. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.